Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. You know, as we've been going through Romans, one of the things that has been kind of in the back of my mind as we talk about the ways that we see God just in general revelation is kind of sciencey stuff. I'm kind of a science nerd at times. And uh, one of the things that I was thinking about was it, it really was very recently, it was 1865, that we made the periodic table of elements, that they even started to categorize it that way. And it was just 30 years after that in 1895 that a guy named Wilhelm Rontag started doing some really interesting experiments. And he would start taking these little vials of different elements, and he was doing all sorts of different experiments on them. But he realized that there was one kind of vials that, even though he would cover the vials with, with black cloth or a screen, that this screen on the other side of his desk that was painted in barium would start to show images on it, almost like a photograph was happening. And he's like, whoa, that's kind of cool. Right? So just like the rest of us, he did what anyone would do, right? He calls his wife. He's like, come look at this. This is kind of fun. Let's see what we can do here, right? Start sticking her hand in the middle of the screen, seeing what happens when those containers start sending stuff out. And what, what can they see? And they're like, well, they can see her bones, and her ring. Nothing goes through the ring. They start adding more things to her arms to see what goes through and what doesn't go through. I mean, this is like a party trick. This is very exciting stuff. You know, he, uh, he's not sure what's going on here. Uh, in fact, he, he names this thing X-ray because he thinks it's like a sun ray, and he's going to come back later on and rename the letter X to whatever is really going on here. As we all know, that kind of stuck around. <laughs> we know about X-rays today because of this. Now, this is a, a really interesting uh, time uh, of science and things that are occurring and changing. You know, different people are doing all sorts of different experiments with elements like this. Uh, there's this one guy, Henri Baccarel, and he realizes that these elements are actually giving off the rays themselves. They weren't sure if they were just absorbing sunlight and giving it back off because, you know, these elements tended to glow. Uh, and so they wanted to figure out what's going on. It was Marie Curie, who with her husband, Pierre Curie, um, were doing experiments, and she's the one who gave it the name radioactivity. Uh, and, and things were just progressing along. This was like the coolest science, like the names, uh, the, the who of who of science community was doing stuff with, with all these different elements. Uh, and Marie Curie is really the one who realizes a, a neat application, which is for World War I, being able to create x-rays so that for the first time, a doctor can see where a bullet might be in someone so they can try to take it out of them and actually help them. It's also where things start to get a little different uh, Baccarel, he's carrying these vials around in his pockets as he goes from lab to lab. And all of a sudden, he gets burns on the inside of his leg and on his hands. In a total dude move, Pierre Curie's like, I don't want to be seen as less of a scientist than him. So he purposefully puts them in his pockets too so he can have burns on his hand and his leg, <laughs> right? Uh, Thomas Edison, he's trying to develop an X-ray tube. And, and he starts to notice that his assistant, Clarence Daly, that his hair starts falling out and his scalp gets all full of ulcers and it's inflamed all the time. Uh, as we're moving into the early 1900s, we have factories full of ladies who are, who are painting clocks and painting uh, uh, instruments for airplanes with paint mixed with radium that they might glow at night and be easier to see. But sadly, these ladies are licking the, the brushes to get a fine point on them as they're doing things. And over the years, they start to have their teeth fall out and even some of their jaws disintegrate in their mouth. 
I mean, Marie Curie herself, she dies of aplastic anemia, which is a side effect of all the different exposure to radiation that she's had. Even to this day, literally today, her notes and even her cookbook from her kitchen are stored in shielded boxes that you can only go and look at if you're wearing the right protective gear because of all the radiation that she was exposed to. You know, today we know a lot more about the general risks of radiation, and we also know that God gave us these elements that have some really interesting properties. I mean, think about the medical advances that we have because of x-rays. Think about the things that we now know because we've sent radioactive material through people and have traced where it goes in their bodies and what's happening. The fact that we can fight things like cancer with radioactivity, and that we can even like harness radioactive material that we might have energy, an energy that some would say is a very clean energy, you know, the real problem that happens here is not with the elements themselves, it's how they, they interact with our flesh, right? A penny really doesn't care if it's irradiated, neither does a rock. But flesh, when our, our human flesh, when other flesh is irradiated, it, it goes berserk. In fact, it, it starts working against itself, eventually leading not just to destruction, but to death. You know, Paul is going to make some comments about the law that are actually kind of similar to how we think about radiation, uh, Paul's been talking about the law since chapter 2. Uh, he's been, been telling us all sorts of different things about it. And at, at times when Paul's talking about the law, he, he's usually thinking about the Mosaic law, uh, the revealed law of God to his people through Scripture, even though he can be talking about it just in the general sense at times, as all the different ways that we know we should act rightly as image bearers of God. And, and up to this point, uh, through chapters 1 through 6, it can seem like Paul's been telling us that the law is unhelpful at best, Maybe even it's really bad. You know, he's kind of like a parent who's been simplifying this idea of radiation for his kids. Here's some of the, the, the statements that he's been making. This is Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Or for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the law brings, the, he says that the law brings knowledge of sin, that the law can't justify us, that God's promises to Abraham were through righteousness, not through the law. It says that the law increases trespasses. Now that doesn't sound very helpful or good or useful. You know, just last week when we were looking at Romans chapter 6, we were seeing two different ways that we kind of can presume upon grace. Now, the first way is this idea that if God's grace has abounded in the midst of all of our sin, why not continue to sin so that more and more grace can just flow over us? And Paul says, no, you were supposed to be dead to sin. You no longer serve sin as a master. Rather, you serve Jesus Christ. And then the second way that we presume upon grace is this idea that, well, then if I am dead to the law, Nothing should bind me. I should kind of do whatever I want. And Paul again reminds us that, no, you might not be bound to the law, but you're bound to the righteousness of God. You know, what we find this morning as we get into Romans 7, 1 through 6 is Paul's really continuing that last argument, that last way of presuming on grace. You know, we kind of ended uh, chapter 6 with this section. It says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit, that you, uh, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is 
where he goes next in Romans 7, where he says, Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. You know, Paul starts chapter 7 by connecting this idea of being free from the law with the previous thing he talked about with being free from sin. It's as if you and I, as if his Roman readers, if we could figure out how not to be connected or to be free from the law, that we might also find ourselves free from sin. You can see how people might begin to be reading this and be taking it in a way that Paul is likely not meaning for us to take it. I mean, look at this first section a little more broadly with me. It says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. Or if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. I mean, let's start by looking at this section for what Paul starts it out with. He starts with, or do you not know? He's talking to us and he's trying to connect one thing that we already understand with an idea that might be new to us. It's his way of trying to bridge the understanding to help us move into a new way of thinking. And in this case, a new way of thinking about the law and sin. Uh, And Paul starts here with, with... with marriage. And he's not just talking to to Jews or Jewish Christians. He's talking to all those who know the law. And in fact, he's presuming that means all of us, that we all understand this natural way that marriage works. And as we've talked about, Paul uses several different kinds of imagery throughout uh, Romans, and especially in this section in particular. Uh, We just saw in chapter six that he uses the imagery of baptism, uses the imagery of slavery, uses the imagery of kingdom. And now he's moving on to this imagery of marriage. And just like we talked about last week, part of when we see him use this much imagery is to realize that he's not trying to give us a full-orbed picture of marriage and how it works. Rather, he's trying to use the, the biggest picture in it, the most clear thing that we would all see when we think about marriage. And what Paul wants us to think about in its broadest term is that marriage is something that we expect should last until one of the partners dies. That's just the normal course of marriage. You know, in this passage, it's not the nuance of marriage or divorce that is Paul's primary points. Rather, when he's telling us, do you not know, he wants us to be reminded that death severs relationship with the law. And we see that again and again. We even understand that in our kind of contract law, that, that, that you're really only bound by a contract till you die, and then it really doesn't hold you anymore. And really, in this section, if we try to push too hard, hard on that analogy of marriage, it gets really, really weird really quick. I mean, the first, the first husband is the law, and the second husband becomes Christ, and that means I need to divorce the first one to get to the second one, and I'm, I'm the, 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 the wife in the picture, or the wife is the true self, and the husband is the old self, and Christ, it just doesn't work. It's another way that we see that the main goal here is not to, to make a nuanced picture about marriage, but rather to help us understand that we are now free from the law. That death is what separates us from the law in Paul's analogy here. And Paul, that's what he moves on to say right here in Romans 7, 4 through 6 then. He says, likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also, just like when someone dies, they're free from a marriage, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul's comparison is, is that through the body of Christ, 
through Jesus' righteous life, his atoning death, his resurrection and power, we have actually died to the law along with him. He's continuing many of the pictures that we saw with baptism and slavery and just all these other ways he's talked previously in the chapter. In fact, when we, when we see this phrase, you also have died, we should be hearing some of the things he's already said about sin just from chapter six, where he said, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have to pause for a minute as Christians and think about how, how weird this would have felt to someone else. Uh, to, to first century Jews and Jewish Christians, this idea that, that we were to die to the law was an odd idea. I mean, they understood the law as a bulwark, this, this, this wall that was meant to help stop sin from getting into their lives. And they thought that by following the law, just doing what it said, they could stop themselves from sinning or at the very least sin less. But that was never the plan. I mean, you can see the confusion, but as we look at the Old Testament, that was never why God gave the law. I mean, look what God says through Ezekiel here, Ezekiel 11, 17 through 20. He says, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the people and assemble you out of all the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all of its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. God assumes that they're not going to be able to do the statutes, the regulations, unless he comes and changes their heart, unless he makes them new. That's what allows them to obey and walk in the statutes, is a change internally, something that, that happens within them. Now God says it through Jeremiah this way. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. God was always at work to put his law within our hearts, to put it even within the heart of the people of Israel. And he says here, how is that going to happen? How is that going to be accomplished? He says, For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. It's going to be through grace. Always by grace through Jesus Christ. Grace was always the plan. Israel and the Jewish people were never meant to look at the law as the way to solve the problem for them. That wasn't the goal of the law. It was the goal of grace. And the Old Testament's experienced something that they couldn't change. They participated in the same salvation line that we do by faith and hope of the promises of God. But in a very real way, they were stuck submitting under the old covenant. They daily walked under the regulations and rules in a way that you and I don't today. They were under a system of law that was over them in every way. And Paul wants us to realize that when we turn back to the law, that's what we're trying to put ourselves back under. That's what he says here when he says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. I mean, surely the Old Testament uh, saints could, could love and cherish God's good law. Think of places like Psalm 119. 
but they also were under a type of bondage that's different than what we have today. They were under those day-to-day requirements. Now here, Paul is reminding us that Jesus set us free from the law, that we died to it in his body in this sense, in this way, and that in doing so, Jesus allowed us so that we could serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old ways of the written code. I mean, his focus here is not in the ways that we're condemned or shown how we're not righteous in the law, but rather this sphere of authority, the sphere of authority of being under the law. And in that sense, we have died to the law. It no longer has that sphere of authority of, uh, over us as though it is what is going to help us. Paul's telling us again and again, it cannot justify us. It will not sanctify us. In fact, you have many different problems because of the law when you try to live under it. You know, now, because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, in his righteousness, through his death and his resurrection, we now have something much better. We have access to God, relationship with him. Because of the Holy Spirit in us, we can begin to want to do things for God's glory, to have those traits and those characteristics that God asks of us. That's where Paul is wanting to take this conversation. That's where he's wanting to go. That's actually where he's going to get to in Romans 8, this beautiful picture of the hope that we have now and the hope that we are waiting for in the new heavens and the new earth being united fully with our God That's what he's excited about. That's what Bren's going to get to preach about next week. And we're excited to hear that. But before Paul can get to all those benefits of the beauty of our union with Jesus Christ, he realizes he's still bringing up points that he has to clarify. He's saying things that might be confusing to everyone. We might be tempted to think that the law is really sin itself. Says this, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it, what it is to covet if the law had, said, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul says here an emphatic no. No, the law is not sin. No way, no how. But look at this word, yet. It's actually but. But, yet. The law and sin have this very complicated and interwoven relationship. First, Paul says that the law has allied itself with sin by bringing knowledge of sin. Without the law, Paul tells us, we would not have known what sin is. And whether you've experienced this because of your own children or working around children or remembering back to when you were a child, you know exactly how this works. Do not touch the stove. Do not hit your sister. Do not pee on the electric fence, Ryan. And what does everyone want to do when they hear that? We want to try it and see what happens when that happens. It's what everyone does, children and adults. That's exactly the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. There's so many sins, so many ways of disobeying that I might not have ever thought about had someone not brought it to my attention that it was not a good idea. You tell me it is a sin, and now as Paul says, sin comes alive within me, and I die. Yet, it's here in Romans 7 that Paul wants to begin to make a shift. He wants to clarify for us once and for all that the law is not the bad thing. 
Yes, it has this relationship with sin. Yes, it makes us aware of sin. But it's not the main problem. In that sense, the law is a lot like the radiation we were talking about previously. Right? It's this, this thing. and In fact, it's this really good thing as Paul's going to talk about. It shows us the very nature of God, his righteous ways, his goodness, his requirements that are all good. The problem is how it interacts with the flesh, much like how radiation interacts with the flesh. Except for in this case, it's the exact opposite. And the law isn't doing anything. It says the law comes to us, our sin grabs onto it, and our sin warps it and changes it. It, it deceives us, Paul says. Right? He says here, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Takes what God's good requirements are, and it warps it in our minds. It entices us towards the very thing that the law is telling us we shouldn't have, we shouldn't do. I mean, it's as though like radiation was originally just meant to go through you, help illuminate things within you, let you see what was there, and that your flesh was causing problems with it. Maybe that is what's going on with sinful bodies. I don't know what God's good intention was for radiation originally. It's this idea that sin deceives us through the law, through the commandments, as it interacts with it, as our flesh comes in contact with God's good and righteous requirements that reminds us again that the law is not the problem itself. The law cannot justify us. The law cannot sanctify us under its power we are enslaved to more sin, and it only shows us sin continually, continually in our hearts as we try to def- defy God's good, righteous, and holy requirements. You know, Paul's going to unpack so much more about this relationship between the law and sin and how it gets so tangled up within us. But first, we have to answer a question you might not have thought to ask, which is, who is Paul talking about when he says, I? That's weird. None of us probably think about that, but there's other people out there who do think about these things, and you can maybe see it when you look at this passage. It says, I, want, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The question is, how could Paul ever really experience that? I mean, in the truest sense, Adam and Eve are the only ones who ever really experienced that, that were truly outside of the law, living in paradise and glory and goodness with God, and then one law came. Do not touch and eat of the tree of the good and evil, Right? And what did they do? They failed. They ate it, right? And in that, death and sin came to them. You know, another way that people wonder about that is, is Paul, Paul thinking about Israel, the reality that Israel had a very different reality before Sinai and after Sinai. What happened in their lives as the, the Mosaic law was brought to them. And both these ways are ways that people are wondering, is Paul just trying to identify with others, saying that this was true of other groups, but it's not really true of him? The other option is that even if you believe it is Paul, you have to ask a question of yourself, is this pre-conversion Paul or post-conversion Paul? All right, when, when we read some of this and we listen to what it's saying and we hear this person almost entrapped by sin, overwhelmed by it, many people say, well, that's got to be Paul way prior to him becoming a Christian. And then there's this, the normal read that you and I probably read when we go through it, which is, I just means Paul is talking now. This is his experience today as a devoted Christian. You know, in one sense, I have a a pastor friend who uses the phrase that these could all be gloriously true. He says that about many things, because in one sense, they are. We have passages that tell us very clearly that Adam and Eve's existence was very different in what they experienced before and after sin. And we all know that Israel and what they went through was different in many different ways prior to receiving the law and where they struggled after receiving the law. 
Now, we all know throughout Scripture that pre-conversion, we all have a different reaction to God and His righteous requirements on us versus now. And we definitely have passages in Scripture that say that we all still sin today as Christians. So there's one way in that we could read this and still come to good theological positions, even if we're not picking the right one. That's, that's the blessing of this question this morning. But I do think that it matters when we want to think about application. How would I apply this to me? Is this actually something I can hold on to? And I would say, yes, I think this is the most natural read is that Paul is saying this is him. And he uses the word I, me, and my 40 times. You're going to have to go pretty far to help explain to me that that doesn't mean just himself. But let's look at a couple other things. Just recently in Romans 5, Paul has been telling us how much he identifies with Christ now, how much we identify with Christ now. That previously where we identified with Adam, now we identify with Christ. He very much so understands this idea of identification, of headship. (coughs) And I think that Paul, in understanding that and, and loving that, can say very truly of himself that even if he had been in Adam's shoes, he would have done the same thing. Right? Had he been fully outside of the law, he would have still succumbed to it. And I'm sure Paul is thinking about his own experience of areas where he didn't realize certain things were sin, and when he did, how twisted his heart becomes. Now, we go to the idea of is it pre-conversion or post-conversion, Paul. I don't know if you remember, but Paul, when he talks about pre-conversion, Paul, pre-conversion, Paul was pretty sure he was fulfilling the law. Pre-conversion, Paul thought that he had every jot and tittle dealt with. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Everyone should look to him seems that what Paul is really saying is this is a current state for himself, right? He, he speaks of himself here as only a Christian can speak, as one who loves God's good requirements, yet hates the sin that's going on in their life. Uh, this seems to be a reality for Paul, and I think it's a reality for me and you as well, uh, this constant battle back and forth. And that's what we're going to see here in this last section of Romans 7. He, he, Paul says this. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul takes this last section to squarely put the problem on sin, on our fleshly existence. He compares again and again the law and sin, the law and sin. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual. That's a good statement by Paul. Paul, But I am of the flesh, sold under sin, bondage to sin. This is about the law. Now, if I want... If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. The law shows us rightly how we should be oriented, but what God's right and good requirements are, but sin, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin is is this cancer within us, uh, doing the things that we don't want. He says, law, 
for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. It's something we should delight in. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, captive, taking us places we don't want to go. I myself serve the law of God with my mind. It's a good thing. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Yes, the law and sin, they are in a complicated relationship. It's like junior hires. It's weird. The law arouses sin. It makes us aware of it where we weren't before. But the real problem, the real problem is sin. The real problem is sin and how it interacts with the right and good requirements of God. How it latches onto it and warps it, deceives us, calls us into a place that we weren't wanting to go previously you know, Paul is rightly modeling for us in Romans how to think about the law and sin and our experience that we keep walking through today. I mean, our reality is going to be that people are going to look at you, they're going to look at me, they're going to look at our church, and they're going to say things like, man, those Christians, look at them. Look at the church in Corinth, look at the church in Rome, look at Rev 22, look at Ryan. They're all failing to rightly live up to the requirements of God. When those kind of comments come, they can drive us or tend to try to drive us in two different directions, right? On the one hand, it tries to drive us towards perfectionism. <laughs> this idea that I'm going to look at the law and I'm going to start making sure I start doing check boxes to make sure I get them all done, to work as hard as I can, to sanctify myself, and in doing so, I put myself back under that authority of the law, and what I find there is that I can do nothing but continue to sin, that I only continue to fail. Paul comes back to that point again and again and again in Romans. I think, at least for me, because I come back to that process again and again and again. Every time I hear or realize that I am not matching up, when someone else says it or when kind of through that side eye, when I look at myself and I think about what I'm doing, I realize how sinful I am. I want to run back to the law. I want to run back to work and perfectionism. Or in my saddest moments on the other side, I run to hopelessness, to despair, to say I have no hope. How could I possibly get any better? There's no hope for me. Look at all this sin. It's overwhelming. It's too much. I can't handle it. We begin to realize that the law is not sinful and the law is not poison. Rather, I'm sinful. And it's my sin that's the poison. It's killing me. We need to remember this, though, about what Paul's saying here. Paul is not telling us that the life of the wretched man is as bad as it could be, only that it is not as good as it should be, and that because the man delights in the law and longs to keep it perfectly, his continued inability to do so troubles him acutely. The wretched man is Paul himself, spontaneously voicing his distress at not being a better Christian than he is. Paul is not hopeless here. He's not despairing in that way. What Paul is asking is a question. He's driving towards this question again and again. Paul wants to know who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will stop this cycle that I am in? Even as Christians, we should be longing for the day when our Lord returns because something miraculous happens in that moment. In that moment, we don't actually have to experience a physical death, yet God will change us in an instant. We will be united to him with a new body, with our souls brought before him to live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. 
That is what Paul is trying to get us to see in chapter 8. It's what matters most is the answer to this question, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has not only solved our justification problem by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but he's solving our sanctification problem by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the continual goal, is grace. And Paul is modeling for me and you this path, this path through, through law, through sin, and our experience today that doesn't seem quite right all the time. You know, Paul ends up this section being okay stuck in this weird place. Paul says this. He says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul is owning this thing that we talked about already, this already not yet existence that you and I live in. We are already decisively and irrevocably free. But we are not yet finally and perfectly free, right? Decisively meaning it's done, it's happened. What always needed to happen for me and you has happened in Jesus Christ on the cross. He died for our sins. He's given us his righteousness. We are now back in relationship with God and it is irrevocable. He will never take that away from you. You as a beloved son, as a beloved daughter, are forever God's child now. But not yet do we see it finally and see it perfectly. Right? We don't see it finally in the sense that we are free of these flesh and sinful bodies. We don't see it perfectly in the ways that we will in the new heavens and the new earth as we are with our God. We are left in this in-between place. In helping us to understand this and how beautiful the grace of God is, Paul is trying to help us navigate this already not yet experience and to admit it, to see what's going on and to long for the day when it's no longer this way. Most importantly, he's bringing us to the relationship that we need in this life to walk this path. He's bringing us to relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ. Grace through our relationship with Jesus is the only way to handle the law. It allows us to rightly see where we are failing, but to know that we have hope and love still through our Savior and his work. You know, it can seem so hard to walk that path and not be, be running to one end of perfectionism to clean ourselves up, to meet up to all the standards, or then to run to the other side in despair as we see the sin that just keeps coming and coming in our lives. So this morning, I wanted to give you two questions to ask yourself as you're trying to navigate this road like Paul. Number one, when you see your sin, do you confess like you believe what Paul is saying here in Romans 7? Do you actually look at your sin and admit where you're falling short of the righteous requirements of God? Are you willing to go there? That's the good use of the law. It shows us what's going on internally when we don't warp it with our sin. You know, when we are not quick to confess, we're either running towards that perfectionism, wanting to hide that the checklist isn't completing itself, or we're running towards hopelessness to not want to talk about it, to not look at the sins that's happening in my life. Friends, I hope you know you're not loved less because you sin. God knew about all those sins when he died for you on the cross. He knew you before time, and when he went to the cross in love for you, it was for all those sins. It was not a one-time thing. It wasn't just everything from when you were 20 years old previous. 
the moment you came to faith, wherever that was for you, is for all of them. Are you able to, to, to see that rightly, to confess it? And so much of it hinges on this next piece that's connected. When you see your sin, do you run to Jesus like you believe he's your hope and your salvation? And when you look at that sin, is your first thought to clean it up? Is your first thought to ignore it? Or is your first thought to fall back into the grace of Jesus? The way you had to the very first time you came to faith. Are you willing to go back to his warm embrace, to your, to your father's loving embrace of you? When you see your sin, whether it's from your own eyes or from others, do you run to Jesus and do you do what Paul does? Do you proclaim him as your only hope? Your only hope in this in-between moment, this already not yet, where you are still bound and held by sin in the flesh. And thank God that Jesus is your hope, that that will not be true forever. This process should make you and I long, long for the return of our Lord and Savior. Every time you feel this in your life, you see that sin come back up, that sin that you don't want, it should take you to your knees and say, Lord Jesus, come. Rid me of this experience in the middle. Bring what is already decisive and irrevocable to the finally, fully, and true and perfect in my life that I can walk with you completely free of the bondage of my sin. One of the ways that God gets the glory in this moment is when we do both those things, when we both look at our sin fully because we know the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of God for us in the grace of Jesus Christ. And we don't embrace the sin, but we can stand to look at it for moments to admit that it's there because we know the hope that we have we acknowledge that sin, when it sees the law, warps into a cancerous-like growth within us. And we instead turn to faith in the grace of Jesus as the only way to handle that law, as the only way to look upon it and find in it hope, find in it joy. Do you know the grace of the beauty of, of God in that way this morning? Is it not only enough for your previous sins and the moments that you came to faith, but is it also enough for you today in the sins that you're going to see in the next hour, in the next day or two? Can you look at those and run to the grace of Jesus Christ? Because that's our only hope for salvation. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you that in your wisdom, in your providence, grace is everything. Thank you, Lord God, that it has always been your plan that through grace you would change your people. And Lord God, would you help us to not run back to the law? Will you help us to see that being under the power and the sphere of the law, looking to it to justify us, looking to us to sanctify us, we will only find ourselves bound to sin again, dying. Lord God, would we run to you in grace? Would we see your law for what it was meant to be, an image of your righteousness and goodness. And, and it should make us long all the more for grace in Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen.